Um, but I'm just going to open up to our reading today. It comes from Galatians 2, 16 to 21. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Hey everyone, I just want to extend my welcome as well. My name is Jacob, if we haven't met before, and it is great to see um, some new faces here, like we see every week, and um, if you are new, we just hope you feel, really feel welcome, and I guess whatever's brought you along today, whether you've been invited by a friend, whether you've maybe looking for a community in the area, or, um, or whether there are yeah, just questions that you've got about the big things of life, we just do hope today's going to be helpful for you. Um, those verses that Josh just read... Uh, are an incredibly just dense and powerful part of the Bible with some amazing truths in there. So we're about to jump into that together now. I'm just going to pray before we do that, so pray with me. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that we have your word, that we can come and have this just time to, to quieten our souls and our minds, to hear from you and to have your word, which is powerful, do a work in our lives. We just pray that by your word today... Um, Things about how we see you and how we see ourselves and how we relate to you and how we live our lives will be changed because you're a God who changes lives and a God who delights to do good things in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is good to be here together. Um, and it's been a few months since we've had restrictions. And I think you can kind of take for granted just a bit of the fact that, you know, on your way in today, you didn't really have to kind of think about um, whether or not you were breaking any laws at any point along the way. Um, if you think about it, like it's been the, for the most part of the last two years, it has been an unusual amount of having to think through laws and how they impact our daily life. There's obviously laws all the time, things you're not meant to do, things you are meant to do, but most of the time we don't really find ourselves butting up against them that often. But to live for a couple of years where you know you actually weren't allowed to go a certain number of kilometres from your house, when you could get a fine from visiting your family, is a bit of a weird thing to think about in retrospect. And I think what th the last couple of years kind of did for a lot of us in, in kind of putting right in our face all these kind of laws that we had to adhere to was to reveal a little bit of our, um, maybe what our predisposition was towards laws. And I think most people with all the COVID restrictions kind of fell into one of three categories. First, you might have been a stickler. If you were a stickler, you, uh, you followed the rules to a T. You stayed home, you did the right thing, you only went out for essentials, you did your shopping online, and you, for the most part, you would have seen the laws as kind of good, authoritative, and necessary. And like, if you were a stickler, I just want to say, you, you carried the rest of us. You were the hero that we needed, but not the hero that most of us deserved. Because I think most people weren't quite sticklers, but they were loopholers. Um, if you, you know, a loophole is someone who follows the rules technically, 
but you take the most generous interpretation of them at any given time. So if anyone in this room, at any point in the last two years, referred to going for a walk with a coffee or a beer as exercise, you're a loopholer. Um, because in 2019, you didn't call drinking coffee exercise, and you don't call it exercise now, but conveniently, for a little bit there, that was exercise. And so maybe you only visited people one-on-one to provide care, but that care may have involved playing PlayStation, <laughs> or maybe you wore a mask, but you just had your little nose poking out as, like a, as a little middle finger to society. So that's, that's the loopholers. And if you weren't a stickler or a loopholer, then you're probably just a flaunter, the scum of society. No, just, just kidding, any flaunters out there, we love you, uh, you made it through. But the flaunters are the ones that are tromping through the supermarket maskless, hosting parties, spreading COVID like there's no tomorrow, having a great time. Um, we all made it through. Whichever of these categories you happen to be in. I was, for the most part of the last few years, I think I'm a, I was a loophole. I was keeping the rules, but a bit generously. Maybe towards the end, slipped into flaunting a little bit, had a few loving people pull me back in. Um, but whichever of these categories you fell into regarding all the rules and restrictions, that's probably going to be driven kind of by how you kind of just perceive what your motivations were for, for following them. Whether, it, whether you were someone who was motivated by the fear of getting a fine if you did the wrong thing, or just wanting to be someone who was perceived and just, you know, you wouldn't want to be seen as breaking the rules, so you just made sure you did it right for how others saw you. Others obviously just had a genuine desire to suppress the virus and to do the right thing and to, and to play your part in that. But the way, the way that you're motivated and kind of how you think about that was going to affect how you related to the law. Now, I know that there are people here who, um, who, who aren't convinced that there's a God, and if that's you, we just love that you're here, we love that you're investigating. But just for the sake of the argument, just um, if you're not already there yet, let's just assume that there's a God and that that God made us and that God has laid out a bit of a, a, a design and a, and a blueprint as to what life should look like, what the good life is. And he desires people to obey the instructions, the commands and, and the kind of life that he's laid out for people to follow. And this is what Christians believe about, about God, that he's made the world and he's told us what is the right way to live within it. So what is your attitude then towards obeying God? Why should we obey? Why, why should we say love our neighbours as ourselves when they're not ourselves and we feel ourselves a lot more? Why would you seek to live a life that is generous as opposed to selfish? Why at times would you deprive yourself of some immediate and easy to attain comfort for the sake of, of obeying some maybe more challenging instruction? Why would you submit your body and your sexuality or your time or your finances to this God? And I think people have got a, a similar spread of kind of motivations that are maybe in play as, as they weigh up whether or not they're going to obey this kind of thing. Maybe there's the, the desire to receive some kind of reward, so the promise of heaven is there and this perfect eternity, and so you're motivated after that. Maybe it's a fear of punishment that you know that, or you feel that if you do the wrong thing and you, and you, you don't live how God wants you to, there'll be some punishment for you from him. Maybe you, you, you follow the rules because you're just the type of person that's like rules are rules, that's how it's meant to be and you just find it easy to go along with. Or maybe it's because you want others to see you as a good and moral and upright person. There's a whole bunch of different motivations that would be in play, I think, for a lot of people. But these motivations aren't all equal. And they will have an impact on how you obey God or to what extent you try to obey Him or whether you do that at all. It'll impact whether... Your relationship to God is one in which is, is exhausting or stressful 
or whether it's something you actually try to even to avoid in your life. Now, the passage that Josh just read to us is kind of digging into this sort of question. It's really um, starting in, in, in as we go through the book of Galatians, which we'll be in for a bit now, to unpack this idea of then what, what is the motivation for a follower of Jesus to seek to live a life that's pleasing to God? And the answer that Paul's going to get to in this passage, and I'll just tell you up front where, where we're going, is that Christians obey God because they've been given a new identity in Christ. So we're going to just do now, as we do every week as we're going through this book of Galatians, just unpack this verse by verse and look at what Paul says about why Christians would obey. So to get us up to speed, we just need a bit of context around um, what's happening in this book. We're, we're reading a letter, and Paul wrote this letter intending it to be read in one sitting. We're breaking it down into like eight to ten weeks. And so we just got to kind of keep track of what's happened already and where we're heading. It's a letter that Paul, an apostle of Jesus, is writing to the churches in Galatia, and he's writing in regards to a controversy that had arisen within the church. And in particular, that controversy was, do you need to follow the Jewish law in order to be a person who is acceptable to God? And particularly the question was, not just do Jews who have become Christians need to keep following the Jewish law, but do people that have got no Jewish ancestry or background whatsoever, when they become Christians, do they have to take on this set of Jewish laws as well? And Paul is writing to say, no, that's not how it works. You don't have to do that because the way that someone is made righteous before God is not by obeying the law, it's by the thing that Paul calls justification by faith. And that's what Jez introduced us to last week, if you were with us. And the, the verse that Jez ended on last week is the one we're starting on this week, which is verse 16, which I think will still be up there on the screen, which says, We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. And this idea of justification is really the centerpiece of Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is the idea he wants them to get their head around. We're going to be coming to this idea week after week, kind of looking at it from just slightly different angles because that's what Paul does as he goes through the book. But the picture we're meant to have in mind as we think of this idea of justification is the idea of a courtroom, one in which we're on trial, that, that one day we'll stand before a judge, God, who will look at us and make a determination as to whether we are righteous or good or unrighteous or falling short or bad in some way. And for the Jewish person, the, the way they would seek to get confidence to stand before this God judge is to follow the law. The idea being, if you keep all the laws, God will look at you and say, righteous. But what Paul says in this verse, in verse 16, is this, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I don't know if many people here um, are following the, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. Can I a show of hands who's kind of across the Johnny Depp? Yeah, pretty much everyone. Who's watching hours and hours and hours of it, <laughs> live streaming it? It's kind of a bizarre phenomenon um, to kind of all be going along together, kind of following this quite an intimate, personal um, set of kind of family breakdown. Um, it's a weird thing to be able to, just to be a part of. And I think it's been interesting, if for those who have been tracking the case, a few weeks back when it was just started, I think people were talking in terms of like Team Johnny, Team Amber, this idea that one of, one of them's kind of in the right, who's going to be the one who's vindicated, who's going to be the one that's shown to be the good one in the relationship, who's going to be the toxic one. But I think what's happened over the weeks, and you probably agree with me if you've been watching it, is that that language has dropped down a little bit, and as people have just taken the stand again and again and again and talked about both of them, 
you're left with a sense that, well, you're kind of both train wrecks in your own way. You're both bringing toxic things into this relationship. And obviously there's been some, some wrong done um, in there. But as you're watching it, you do feel a sense of, man, I feel sorry for these guys. Because who of us would like the idea of having an internationally broadcast account of, e of, our, of our exes, of our ex-co-workers, or our ex's friends, or whatever, or family, or taking the stand, just every person that may have a possible gripe with you, and just being free just to kind of relay that to the world, every bad part of your personality. You, we would hate it. But imagine if even more than that, um, you were on, on public display and a video was put out, not just of what people had witnessed in your life, but of what God had seen in your life of the things that you, have, you had done in private, or even the thoughts that you had thought. The idea is that if that happened to any of us, we would be ashamed. We, the reality of our lives, as good as they often look, is that we, are, we have parts of our life that we are embarrassed of, that we know deep down that we are in the wrong, that we are not righteous, that we are not perfect. And so Paul's point is this. No one is declared righteous according to the law because every single person has fallen short of it. Every person sins. Which raises a question then, well, how can anyone, is, is, is that just flat out judgment for everyone? How is it that anyone can be declared righteous? And Paul's answer is, no, you can be declared righteous, just not by following the law. You can be declared righteous through faith in Jesus. That because of who Jesus is and what he's done, that rather than just obeying the law ourselves, we can actually have Jesus' good works, his good life credited to ourselves, that when God stands before us and judges us, that he would judge us as he sees Christ, not as our works deserve. And that's the doctrine of justification in a nutshell. And so that's what Paul said. That's what we covered last week. And then what happens following that is that Paul kind of anticipates an objection. He anticipates a question that, that that raises, which is this. If you don't have to keep the law and live rightly to be declared righteous... Well, then what's to stop you just diving headlong into sin? Why not just live however you want and kind of take that get-out-of-jail-free card and do what you want? Isn't this doctrine actually bad? Isn't this doctrine going to make people just live these kind of lawless, like, anarchist lives? The modern way of framing this would maybe be like, well, why not just live how you want and then on your deathbed just turn to Jesus then? Or it's when we kind of say to ourselves, look, I know I'm not meant to be doing that but I'm forgiven anyway, so I'm just going to kind of ignore what this part of my life. That's the argument that Paul turns to in this next section, which is going to carry us really through this chapter and the next. And this is what he says in verse 17. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So Paul is starting to confront this idea, well, well is this just going to mean that Jesus is even a, like a promoter of sin? If he, if he gives you this kind of way out that leads you to live a more sinful, reckless life? And Paul says no. But what he's doing here is he's acknowledging the fact that, that it, the, the question is at least raised. And, he, and the, the way that people are inclined to view this issue of being made righteous and how the Jews are viewing it are in this sort of false dichotomy. That there's only two real ways to live. And that is by fastidiously keeping the rules, which you may have heard referred to as like legalism, so just kind of do it all right. Or the alternative is living this kind of hedonistic, indulgent, in, um, like licentious kind of 
lawless life. But what Paul wants to make clear is that they're not the only two options. There is a third way, which is gospel-motivated obedience. And he says that the key to understanding why you would live a life of gospel-motivated obedience is by understanding how justification changes your identity. Look at the next verses in verse 19 and 20. Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What we see here is that justification is deeper than just dismissing sin. We've got a two-year-old at the moment who is learning a lot every day, and most of what he's learning is how to break stuff and disobey me. Um, he, he, he loves just turn, he'll turn the oven on and just leave the room, not telling you he's done it, so you just find the oven running, put stuff in the PowerPoint, tipping water on laptops, hitting stuff. He's got a toy hammer, just loves whacking stuff. And so what I'll do at the end of a tired day is I'll, I'll get home, I'll sit on the couch, and he'll come in, show me his hammer, and start hitting the TV. And I'll say, River, stop hitting the TV. And then he'll look at me, and then he'll hit the TV again. And I'll say, River, if you hit the TV again, I'll put you on the naughty chair. And then he'll look at me, and then he'll hit the TV again. And at that point, I realize I'm quite tired. I do not have it in me to deal with a tantrum right now. I do not want the next hour to be a fight and, a, and, and screaming. So I'll just look at him and then let him, let him go with it. Now, that's, that's, that's dodgy parenting. Um, that's not how you're meant to do it. Because um, it's going to turn him into a brat. But here's the thing. I think, I think sometimes we think of God as this... this cranky guy in the sky who says, don't do that. And then we do it. And he says, no, serious, don't do that. And then we do it. And he says, all right, I forgive you. And that that is not what justification is. It's not that God just kind of would say, oh, you keep doing it, but I'm just going to let it go. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He doesn't just, just ignore it. Justification is much more than that. It's the actual trading of, of an identity when, when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, he, and, and instead of that, I've got Christ who lives in me in verse 20, he's talking about something that is beyond our understanding. It's talking about something quite supernatural. That he points to a historical event, the crucifixion of Christ, and he says that thing that happened when Jesus was nailed to a cross and died changed something internally in me. He's saying that in that moment, that wasn't just some dis- kind of disconnected abstract event, what really happened in that moment is that Jesus stood before God, received his punishment and judgment, and he received it for my sin. Then in a sense, my, my sinful, selfish self was kind of imputed into him in that moment. And in, in, in his place, in, in, in the place of that, we get his life. Christ living in us. And we're made new. It's a, it's a radical doctrine. And it's what we need because as much as we can often, I think, make ourselves appear all together to people around us, most of us are familiar with the mess that's inside. I think you might be able to identify, this is what I feel, that if, if my soul was a house, it would be a hoarder's house filled with junk and debris and festering, rotting old things with dappled motivations and, and addictions and selfish tendencies and toxic thoughts 
and behaviors and attitudes that are ingrained from our families or, or traumas or experiences. And what Jesus does when he comes across us is he doesn't just burn us to the ground or he doesn't just kind of paper over the front and make it look pretty from the outside, leaving everything broken and rotten inside. But what he does is he clears house. He clears us out. He takes our sinful selves and, and crucifies them with him. But he doesn't just leave us empty. He doesn't just leave us a blank slate. He doesn't just kind of leave us bare. He moves in. And he starts doing in us what he would have us do. He starts beautifying things according to his desires and tastes. He starts filling us with his motives and desires. In a sense, we are the same people, but in another sense, we are new. We're new creations. This is the change that the gospel brings as Christ comes and lives in us, being this new animating, driving force in our lives to change us. And so this is the key to understanding this, this, this doctrine, is that we obey not because we just try hard to obey, but because God gives us the ability to obey. Our desires change because we are now given the desires of Jesus. Christianity isn't about getting to work, trying to fix yourself up. It's about being given something new. It's receiving a gift and being changed. And if you believe this, it will change your life. Because we live under a different set of motivations. There's a before and after that happens with, re- with understanding this or receiving this justification, this gospel, this good news, this grace. Paul just said, I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. And then in the next line, he says something which was almost kind of paradoxical when you read them together. He just says, I, I don't live. And then he says, um, I've lost the verse reference for this one. Um, It'll be up there somewhere. He says, um, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he's saying that we've obviously still got a life to live. We've got decisions to make. We've got a, you know, we live, we're living lives right now. And he says, though, that even though we do keep living lives, in one sense similar to those around us, we live our lives under a completely different principle, which is to live by faith. And faith in what exactly? Well, it's faith that what he's just said has happened, that Jesus died on the cross in our place, took our sinful selves to death, and has given us his life. That he's loved us and has given this gift of grace. And if you live in faith that that reality is true, it changes everything. Because it's a motivation shift. If your motivation was to get rewarded by obeying God, you've already got the reward. So that motivation is gone. If your motivation is to avoid punishment from God, he's already said he's not punishing you. The punishment's been done. So that motivation is removed. If you're worried about how you look to others, even that's taken away because you know that you are loved by God. So the only motivation that remains is just to live for God himself. To live honoring the one who has loved you. Not to honor his law, but to honor him. Not to try to seek righteousness, but to live out righteousness. To live for God himself. And I think this is the only intrinsic motivation that will lead to any kind of sustained righteous living. Last week I went um, ocean swimming with, with Jez um, for the first time. So I, people don't know this about Jez. Every week he goes to Bondi and swims out the back in the sharky, jellyfishy water and swims and then comes in every week and says how much he loves it and how fun it is. And so I said, look, I've got to see what this is about. I was terrified because you can't see behind you when you're swimming and there's probably like 20 sharks right behind you at any given time. And it was all right. Like I 
got back to shore, I felt refreshed. I uh, felt a bit exhilarated because of the fear that was like through me the whole time. <laughs> but there's, there's people out there that do this every day and every week and they even push through the winter and get out and swim in the ocean. And you can imagine there'd be a whole different range of motivations for doing that. You might have someone who's just motivated because they like the idea of being able to say, hey, I went for an ocean swim because it makes you feel like you're a nature person and you look like a healthy person. Maybe it's just part of your identity. So you say, I'm an ocean swimmer and that's why you do it, just to maintain that, that image. Or maybe a, a slightly deeper motivation than that might be someone who wants to be healthy. You know, it's like a pretty healthy activity. I might say, look, I want to go. I want to look like Jez. I want to be able to eat burgers and still look like Ned Flanders with my shirt off in any given week. <laughs> but that motivation will get you only so far as well. Um, Sarah told me not to say that, but I said it anyway. Um, but a third motivation that would carry you through is just to be able to say, I love ocean swimming. I feel great when I'm out there. I feel free. I feel alive. I just feel the best I feel in the week is when I'm ocean swimming. And I think we know intuitively that of those three motivations, only the third one is probably going to get you there when it's cold, when it's hard, and when you're tired. Other than experiencing grace and knowing that you are loved and being changed inside to actually love God and have Jesus dwelling in you, other than that, no motivation will suffice what is needed to make you to live a life that is obedient to God. If you are not motivated by this grace and this internal and this change reality, you will likely slip into kind of one of these two other categories that we mentioned before. Either legalism, which is just, just gritting your teeth and just trying to obey. Or licentiousness or lawlessness, which is just saying, everything to the wind, I can do what I want. And both of these are dangerous because both of them diminish what Jesus has achieved for us on the cross. So it's worth considering if you have any leaning towards each of these. And I think most of us have a leaning, whether it's towards legalism, whether you fall into thinking that your standing before God depends on your effort, on your own success, on your own goodness, uh, that you kind of hold these, these rules for yourself and, then, and hold others to them as well. So you've decided for yourself that you shouldn't watch certain TV shows and when other people do, you feel better than them because they're watching those horrible shows that... Whatever, whatever that is for you and, and you don't. Or you've decided how many minutes to read your Bible or how many verses are appropriate for you and you, you hold that fast, you do it every day and when you hear that someone hasn't read the Bible for a few weeks, you think, I've been doing it every day. And your motivation in that is, I can do it. I can do it in my strength. I will succeed, I'll do right, even if it's hard, I'll grit my teeth and bear it and I will be okay. And do you know what living like that feels like? It's exhausting. It's discouraging because you don't always succeed. You fail sometimes, then you feel like a failure. I don't think many of us think of ourselves as legalistic because we're not like people in the olden days who are like, no dancing, no fun or whatever. But if you actually stop and think about your experience of following Jesus, and if the main emotion that comes to mind is exhaustion, weariness, guilt, shame, disappointment, if they're the kind of emotions that, that come to mind when you think about how you go on as a follower of Jesus, it's probably because deep down you have some retained belief that how God views you is dependent on what you do and that God has left the onus on you to make yourself righteous. And that's exhausting. And it discounts the cross because we're made new. 
Jesus has died in our place, given us his life. And so Paul says in verse 21, this is the problem with legalism. And this is why he doesn't do it. And this is why justification by faith is good. Because in verse 21 he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's how you're living if you live like it depends on you. You're saying, well, Christ died for nothing. Maybe as an example, who knows what, but he didn't die for me. But there's a second way you can kind of fall off this. It's the other side. This living, this lawless life, just living as you see fit. It's to say that, look, I've been forgiven. I can do what I want. And so maybe you accept Jesus and maybe you've prayed a prayer somewhere or that's how you identify someone says, do you have a religion? Say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Um, or, and maybe you even kind of maintain some things, like going to church every week, going to a small group, um, because they're the things that are really apparent to everyone else, so no one's going to kind of question you if you're doing those two things. But deep down, you're motivated to live an autonomous life. You're just driven by what feels good. And so the parts of your life that no one sees, the way you express your sexuality, perhaps, the things that you spend money on, the things that you think about, the ideas that you consume on TV or wherever else, all of that's left unchanged. And there's no desire to undergo a real change. And that too nullifies what's happened on the cross because when Jesus dies in our place, he gives us a new life and he puts his desires in us. And if the only things you're trying to maintain is this external kind of facade and internally you're not changed, maybe you haven't experienced this life. Or maybe you have experienced this life, but through whatever's happened, you've grown a bit dim to it, or you've grown a bit cold to it. If, if either of those ring true to you in, in a small way or in a big way, the answer is the same. The answer is to look to the cross. To remember what Jesus has done. To remember that he loved us as we are, despite the fact that we are not righteous. Despite the fact that we can't achieve our own righteousness. Despite the fact that if... If anyone else saw what he sees in us, we would just be mortifully embarrassed. But he sees us and he loves us. And he died for us so that we might have his life. We need to keep going back to the cross. Now, communion or the Lord's Supper is something that that Christians celebrate um, in different ways and different traditions. But the the way we do it here is from time to time we, we eat some bread and we drink some juice. Um, as a tangible reminder to ourselves of what has already been achieved 2,000 years ago in Jesus. It's not this, it's not a magical thing or superstitious or anything like that. It's just because we're creatures and we have bodies, we do something physical just to try to get our brains remembering this. This is a reality. Jesus really died that we might be forgiven. And it's to have that moment to reflect and to pray. And if, and if it is the case that you've been falling down that legalistic side or falling down that just doing what I want side. Remember, no, Jesus died that we might have a new life. That he would take that pressure and that stress upon himself that we might just be able to freely and joyfully follow him. So we're going to do communion now. And the way that's going to work is the band's going to come up and they might come grab their, their, their places now. And they're going to lead us in an, in an item. So just a song that you're not going to sing. You can just stay in your seat where you are and just reflect on these words as we just sing of God's goodness and his heart towards us. And that might be all you want to do, particularly if you're someone who, you know, you, you're very new to all this or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You might just want to sit there, reflect, listen. You might have just want to tune out as well, and that's okay as well. But for those of us who, who've made a decision to center our lives around the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
what you can do as this song is being sung is you can walk to the back, you'll find some um, cups of juice, some bread, I'm pretty sure there's even some gluten-free bread up there. You just, just in, while it's singing, grab the juice, grab the bread, come back down, sit down, don't eat or drink them yet. And then after that item is finished, um, together, those of us who are partaking in it will, will eat and, and drink the juice. But again, I just want to say if you're new, um, don't feel any pressure. Don't, you can just sit where you are and, and, and relax and enjoy yourself through this as well. So right now, just take a moment. Take a moment to be quiet before God, to think on your life, to think on what he has done for you. When you're ready to go get some bread and juice, and then t- we'll come back together after that and we'll pray and take communion together. So hopefully you've had a minute to even just just reflect or even pray to God in that time um, or just to consider the weight of what we're doing now, not because there's anything special about this juice or this bread, but because there is something extremely special about what Jesus did for us. That when he died, it wasn't just something that happened in history, but it's something that affected each and every one of us. That our truly broken and sinful selves were placed on him. That he received the judgment we deserve and through living his righteous life, in, in his place, we get his righteousness. And God now looks at us in love. He looks on us like his children. He looks on us as his, as his people with, a, with a, a heart of affection towards us. In the night before Jesus died, he, he ate a meal with his disciples, um, which is where this comes from. And they were eating, eating bread and drinking wine. And he said, um, do I even have it here? <laughs> Maybe not. Um, the, uh, he said that as we, as we eat and, and drink um, bread and wine, we do this in remembrance of the covenant um, of his blood that he's poured out for us. So what we're going to do right now um, is we're going to eat this bread, to take it and eat it, and remember Jesus' body torn for us. And so now take this juice and drink it in remembrance of Jesus' blood poured out for our sin. I'll pray now. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for, the, for this amazing doctrine of, of, of justification by grace and how that changes how we see ourselves, how it changes how we are motivated to live, how it frees us from any motivation that is just based on getting something from you or avoiding some punishment, or, or, or appearing to be right, or just doing it and going through the motions, that we are given new hearts, that you are inside of us, you are living in us, dwelling in us, leading us towards you. And for any of us who are just feeling today exhausted, weary, we ask that, that you would be reminding us that it is done, it is finished. There is nothing more that we need to bring and free us under that. And for those of us who are living like what you've done for us does not matter, like it does not need to change us, like it is not, not worth living in response to, we just ask that you would help us see your goodness and grace, that you would be our deepest desire. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for what it means. We thank you for what it's achieved. And we, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.